Well, all the news this week is, of course, about the, the turmoil and all the contention, the, the big news coming out of Washington, D.C. And the news channels, of course, have just been covered with all of these issues and questions. You would think, if you had paid attention to the news here in the last few days, you would think that what's going on in Washington, D.C., these probably the biggest issues and the most pressing questions that have ever existed in all time. But of course, if you keep listening to the news this time next month, this time next year, the current questions will be forgotten and a whole new set of big, big issues, big, big questions will arise. We know that when it comes to these affairs of men, especially political affairs of men, the, the, the issues and the questions are changing all the time. What's important today may not seem very important at all this time next week or next month. We know, though, what is the most important issue and the greatest question facing mankind. We talk about it pretty often. It is that very simple question, what must I do to be saved? There's nothing else that compares to that. And so our study this morning, again, for a few moments, will be about that question, what must I do to be saved? Before we dive into that study a little more thoroughly, we stop here to express a word of thanks to everybody for being here today. I'm going to tell you, if you wanted to paint a picture of a perfect weather day on a Sunday morning in Middle Tennessee, this would be the day. I, uh, I think I said to Richard, uh, this, is, this is what you want, right? You couldn't ask for better than this. This is just ideal, and we are blessed. We are blessed with God's beautiful springtime, but we're also blessed to be able to be together on this Lord's Day to worship Him and, and, and offer Him our honor and glory. And thanks for being here to be a part of it. For any and all who are visiting with us, thanks for coming today. Come back as soon as you can. All right, the greatest question of life is, what must I do to be saved? But, unfortunately, there are plenty of people who are giving wrong answers to that very simple question. And I know that you're aware of that. And I want to deal with one particular error that is taught concerning what must I do to be saved. I got this off of an internet website. And the, and the person who wrote this blog said, all we have to do is call upon him. And we will touch him who is the life-giving supply. In Romans 10, verse 13, the Bible says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One is saved simply by calling on the Lord. He is rich to all who call upon him. Notice, all we have to do. One is saved simply by calling on the name of the Lord. Now, he references Romans 10, verse 13. That was in those verses that... Cole read for us earlier. And Romans 10 verse 13 says definitely, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But our question is, what does that mean? Does it mean what this writer says it means? Simply all you have to do is call on his name. Just call on his name. That's just, that's simple. In fact, here's another source uh, who offers a prayer that you could pray that accomplishes this calling on the name of the Lord. And this is the way that that prayer, he says, just say this prayer. Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. You said in your word that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And there again, he references that Romans 10, verse 13. Father, I come to you in prayer asking for the forgiveness of my sins. I confess with my mouth and believe with my heart that Jesus is your Son and that he died on the cross that I might be forgiven and have eternal life. Father, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I ask you to come into my heart, be my personal Lord and Savior. 
I repent of my sins and surrender myself totally and completely to you. Heavenly Father, by faith I confess with my mouth that I am born again and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. And so there's the sinner's prayer. Now, this is a version of the sinner's prayer that you may not have heard exactly worded that way because there's all variations on the so-called sinner's prayer. But that kind of salvation, that sinner's prayer kind of salvation is based upon a, I think, misunderstanding of Romans 10, verse 13, and especially the statement, call upon the name of the Lord. And so we want to look at that this morning to get a clear and proper understanding of what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, obviously, that expression is being used by some, and the, and the intention of that is to simply say, all you have to do is call out His name. Just ask Him. Just call out His name, and you will be saved. So let's see if we can just look at a few simple passages this morning and reach a right understanding of what this expression really means. Now, as we do that, we want to accomplish two things. One is we want to combat the false doctrine that is being taught of basically it's just a matter of acknowledging Jesus, asking Him into your heart. There's really not anything you do. It's a faith-only kind of salvation. They would use this expression to try and teach that view. And we want to combat that because we don't think that's what the Bible teaches. But secondly, we, under, we want to understand what it really means because that's what we got to do, right? If you want to be saved, you got to call on the name of the Lord. So it's, it's, it's important to study that in, in the intention of combating false doctrine, but it's even more important to study that with the intention of making sure I have done that because I want to be saved in eternity, right? I want to go to heaven when this life is over. So what does calling on the name of the Lord really mean? Well, the first thing that we would point out is that Jesus himself said that it means more than just verbally calling out his name. In Matthew chapter 7 Verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So notice, it's something they were saying. They were saying, Lord, Lord. And so these people were calling his name, weren't they? They were calling out his name, Lord, Lord. And he says, not everyone that does that will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But notice, there was something to do. He that doeth the will of my Father that is in heaven. So Jesus clearly says that this matter of calling on the name of the Lord is not just to call out His name. There's something that you need to do. In fact, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said it doesn't even make sense. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Jesus is saying it doesn't even make sense to do that. If you're, just, if you're going to call me Lord, it doesn't make sense to call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say. The term Lord, the title Lord, is a title expressing authority. And one who is a Lord, or in this case the Lord, has the right to command and to expect obedience Jesus says it's senseless to call him your Lord if you're not going to do the things that he says to do. So our first answer comes from Jesus himself. He says that's not, that's not all that's involved. It's not just calling out my name. There's, there's something you have to do. Well, let's go to another passage that gives us another little insight. And this has to do with a, an example that doesn't really deal with spiritual salvation. This is, this is another, this is a, a this world sort of a matter. 
But it helps us understand a little bit about word usage. Paul appealed unto Caesar. And if you study in the Greek, that word, we'll look at the text here in just a minute, that word is the same word, call upon. Paul called upon Caesar, and it meant more than just calling out his name. Look at Acts chapter 25, verse 10. Now, a little bit of background here to remind us of what's been going on. You remember well, at the end of the third missionary journey, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and held really without any formal charges being filed against him. There was a plot by the Jews in Jerusalem to kill him, and so the Roman authorities transported him away from Jerusalem. They took him to Caesarea. Caesarea was the Roman provincial capital of that area, and Paul was held there. He was held there for more than two years. He was there long enough that the the Roman-appointed governor changed. Uh, And so uh, he'd been there a long time. The original governor was Felix. Now he's gone. Festus is in his place. Festus doesn't even know what this is all about. And so at the urging of the Jews who still want to kill Paul, Festus says, let's go back to Jerusalem. Let me take you back to Jerusalem and you can face your accusers there in Jerusalem. And Paul knows that's a, that's a death penalty sentence right there. If he goes back to Jerusalem, they will kill him. And so when that suggestion is made, let's go back to Jerusalem, Paul says in Acts 25 verse 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar, Paul says. Now, if you were to look at a Greek text, you would find out that this word translated here as appeal, I appeal unto Caesar, is exactly the same word that we're studying this morning to call upon. And you could translate this accurately. I call upon Caesar. Now, the point, the reason why we're, we're, we're emphasizing this passage is that we see something about word meaning here. What was Paul saying? So is Paul saying, okay, I have called out the name Caesar. Now you have to let me go. You have to let me go because I said his name. No. What Paul was doing was he was submitting to all the legal requirements of the Roman system of law. I, I appeal to Caesar. I, I want to follow that process. And, and we know that he didn't, get, he didn't get released immediately upon making that request. In fact, it was another long time. And that treacherous journey by ship to Rome and the shipwreck and all of that. And when he got to Rome, he was held as a prisoner there until he had a formal hearing before Caesar. He was saying, I submit to Caesar's rule. I appeal to Caesar. I submit to his rule. You see, the, you see the meaning of the word there, don't you? To call upon doesn't mean just to say his name. To call upon means to submit to such a one. And Paul was saying, I submit to Caesar. I submit to the Roman system of law. And if you're going to put me to death, you're going to have to do it through that methodology. And I, I'm willing to accept that. I'll follow that methodology and you must follow it as well. That was the idea of appealing to Caesar. So just uh, make a note there. There's, that helps us with word meaning, doesn't it? And so if we were going to make an application to what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord, it would also suggest then that 
that means we're going to submit to him. Just like Paul said, I, I appeal to Caesar, I will submit to him. We call upon the name of the Lord, it means we will submit to him. Let's stay with Paul and take, go back a little earlier, much earlier in his life, actually, when he was still known as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus, who would later be the Apostle Paul, was perhaps the main leader of the persecution against early Christians. Um, he had persecuted them in Jerusalem, we know. He, he apparently may have, in fact, been in charge of the proceedings when, when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death. Saul of Tarsus was there and may have been, in fact, in charge of that matter. And he continued to persecute Christians, hunting them down. He even gained authority from the chief priest to go to foreign cities and track down Christians who had traveled there. And he was on his way to Damascus in Syria. When he saw the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was struck blind. And Jesus said, go into the city. It'll be told thee there what thou must do. Now... So Paul goes, he's blind. He's, he's left blinded by this experience. He's led by the hand. They take him to Damascus. Meanwhile, in Damascus, in Acts chapter 9, beginning verse 10, it says, There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he had done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. Oh, there's that phrase again, isn't it? Ananias, and I've always been very sympathetic with Ananias. Ananias' response basically was, are you sure that's what you want me to do? I've heard about this guy. I've heard about how he's going around persecuting Christians everywhere he can find. Are you sure that's what you want me to do? But notice how he worded it. He has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon thy name. Paul was hunting for people who call upon the name of the Lord. Who were those people anyway? Uh, were they people who had just at one point or another in their life said, Lord, Lord, or uh, called upon the name of Jesus just verbally saying the name Jesus? We know better than that, don't we? We know that the people who were there... The Christians who were there, the ones who were calling upon the name of the Lord were there because they had been run out of Jerusalem under threat of bodily persecution. They had had to flee from Jerusalem and they took the gospel everywhere with them. Remember in Acts 8 beginning verse 1, Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered abroad. As for Paul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. These people who were in Damascus were among those who were scattered abroad. They weren't just calling on the name of the Lord, were they just verbally acknowledging Jesus? They were devoting their lives at risk of personal harm and persecution. They were devoting their lives in service to the Lord. They were the kind of people who were so devo devoted that they would not give up their faith. And even when they had to flee from Jerusalem, they went everywhere preaching the word. Paul was looking for people who were calling upon the name of the Lord. And again, you get the clear idea that this, this expression means those who serve him, those who are devoted to him, those who are committed to this, not just some kind of verbal acknowledgement. 
Stick with Paul again. What was Paul's own personal story in this regard? What did Paul do? Well, Paul called up in the name of the Lord too. And we realize that when he did that, he did more than just verbally say Jesus' name. He was fully obedient. And that obedience included baptism. How did he call on the name of the Lord? Let me take you back again to that passage we were looking at just a minute ago in Acts 9. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. To him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. So now, make sure we got this story all together. He had seen Jesus on the road to Damascus and spoke with him. He was left blinded, told, go into the city. It will be told thee there what thou must do. He's led, he's blind. He's led by the hand. They lead him to Jerusalem and he's praying. Now, the previous verse says that he had also been fasting for days. For days he had been fasting and praying. Now, think about that for just a minute. He had been fasting and praying. Wouldn't that suggest that if, if, if that quote that we read earlier basically says all you need to do is pray this prayer and be saved. He was fasting and praying. Isn't that exactly what those people in those quotes that we had at the start of the lesson, isn't, exa- isn't that exactly what they said you're supposed to do if you want to be saved? Just pray the prayer, right? He wasn't, Paul wasn't just praying, he was also fasting. Did it save him? Well, we know the answer to that is no, because when Ananias came to him, this is what Ananias said. This is a retelling of the story in Acts chapter 22. In Acts 22, verse 16, when Ananias came to him, it says, Now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So notice, he was still in his sins. He needed to wash away his sins. So he wasn't saved yet, right? He's still in his sins. You need to wash away your sins. What do you got to do? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. But notice the phrase, calling on the name of the Lord. How do you call on the name of the Lord? Paul called on the name of the Lord. How did he do it? By full obedience and complete submission to the Lord, including baptism for the remission of sins. Do you see that? He was still in his sins. He'd been praying and fasting for days. He was still in his sins. It didn't save him. And he had to be baptized, wash away his sins. And in that process, he would be calling on the name of the Lord, appealing to the Lord for salvation by virtue of his obedience to God's commands. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? In fact, that's so clear that as I've heard an old preacher say before, you'd have to have help to misunderstand that. That's just too obvious, isn't it? That calling on the name of the Lord in Paul's particular case included full obedience. It included baptism for the remission of sins. And by the way, we would not say that baptism was the most important part of that process. Uh, Every other thing necessary before baptism, faith, repentance, and confession, all of that's important. But we we do not have our sins washed away until we have gone through that whole process, including baptism for the remission of sins. That's how Paul called on the name of the Lord. All right. Finally, let's look at one more text. 
Peter, the Apostle Peter, explained to the people on Pentecost that one calls on the Lord again by full obedience, including baptism. All right, let's go back there to Acts 2. This goes back to the very day that the gospel was first preached in the city of Jerusalem and that the church was established there. And so Peter stands up and he's preaching to the assembled Jews on Pentecost. Pentecost, as we remember, was a very big feast day of the Jews. There were lots of Jews in Jerusalem from all over the world and various countries of the world were represented there. They're listed in Acts chapter 2. And so Peter has an occasion to preach to them. This is the first recorded gospel sermon. And in that sermon, Peter quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel. He said this, this that's happening right now, here we are. And all that you see happening here, Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass, he quotes, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's that expression again, isn't it? And actually, Peter uses that expression, but it's a quote. It's a quote from Joel chapter 2. The phrase itself is found in Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And so this is not even a new, this is not even a new statement, is it? This is an old statement. Hundreds of years before the prophet Joel had said, it will come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter references that in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Alright? So to the assembled Jews, he says, you need to call on the name of the Lord. Now, the, the question was, how would you do that? What would be the application of Joel's prophetic statement? How would you call on the name of the Lord? Would you just call out his name? Would you just say a prayer? Because that's what some of our religious friends say that that means. Well, we know for sure of the proper application of that because at the end of the sermon. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So they exactly asked, them, then what does that mean we should do? They'd already been told, you've got to call on the name of the Lord. Joel prophesied, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But they still ask, what does that mean then? How do we do that? What shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent and be baptized. That was the answer to how you call on the name of the Lord. You don't just say a prayer. You don't just say His name. They had been told, You will be saved by calling on the name of the Lord. And here they are told how to do it. Is that clear enough? I hope you agree with me. That's pretty clear. That's pretty straightforward. It wasn't just a verbal acknowledgement. It wasn't a salvation by faith only. Peter explained that one calls on the Lord by obedience, including baptism. So put that all together and think again about those quotes that we put up there earlier. One is simply saved by calling on the name of the Lord. One is saved by saying a sinner's prayer. That's not what the expression means, right? And very clearly we can see, just looking at a few simple passages, common sense says that's not what it means. So, again, as we said at the outset, we want to be ready with that answer because there's a lot of false teaching in that regard in the religious world. People teaching false doctrine about salvation, they're teaching false doctrine about the most important thing of all. What must a person do to be saved? 
and they are misapplying on misunderstanding and misinterpreting the expression call on the name of the Lord. We see here what it means. So again, we want to have that ready answer uh, to explain that matter whenever it may come up. But as we said earlier, more important than that is are we ready by virtue of ourselves having called upon the Lord? Not just to answer a false doctrine somewhere, but have we made application of that ourselves? Have you called upon the name of the Lord so that you might be saved eternally? That calling upon Him or appealing to Him means to submit fully and obediently. Hearing the truth, believe it. Repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you've not done those things, we hope you'll make that decision without delay. If you need more information, if you still have questions, we'd be more than anxious to sit down and study with you about those things. Let us know how we can help. If you're a Christian already but you've fallen away, come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing this song.